Well, good morning. Uh, if we've not yet met, my name is Becca Fairley. Uh, I've been a member of Holy Trinity for about 12 years, uh, and many years ago I used to be on the staff team, so I get to come and preach occasionally, which is an absolute privilege. Uh, we are at the end of a mini sermon series, and we have been looking at things which prevent us from being fruitful as Christians. And today it's the turn of money, and how a wrong approach to money can stunt our growth as Christians. So why don't we pray as we start? Let's pray together. Let's just take a moment just to pause and be still before the Lord. And if there's anything on your heart that's distracting you, maybe from hearing him, why don't you just bring it to him now? Father God, thank you that you long to speak to us. Would you give us open ears and willing hearts and help us to hear you this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This Christmas marked a significant transition in the Fairley household, in my household. Uh, my husband decided that our children, who are aged nine and seven, were old enough to play Monopoly. Um, if you don't know what Monopoly is, it's a board game um, which involves sort of buying and trading properties. Uh, and the winner, as far as I can ascertain, is the person who ends up with the uh, largest number of property, uh, the sort of largest property portfolio, uh, has the most money in the bank and essentially bankrupts everyone else uh, around the game. It's a super fun game. It's really relaxing. It's great fun, particularly when you're stressed and playing with your extended family uh, at Christmas. Um, now, to be honest, I didn't think that my little cherubs were going to be ready for this game. I didn't think they had the cutthroat instincts necessary to play such a game, particularly with my husband and myself, who are, has to be said, teeny tad competitive. Um, turns out I needn't have worried. They were both naturals. They got it like that. Um, so much so that we ended up playing a lot of Monopoly could possibly say it was an addiction. Uh, they woke up in the mornings, can we play Monopoly today, mummy? Um, so we played a lot of Monopoly, and um, I wanted to share with you some things uh, that were said by them, I hasten to add, uh, while we were playing Monopoly. These are actual quotes uh, that my children said. Mummy, <clears throat> I'm not sure I really should, want, should build any more properties um, because I've only got five million, and uh, I'm worried about losing all my money and becoming poor. Um, there are fines in the game. If you pick up a chance card, you might get a fine. My son picked up a chance card, and he had a fine. He was like, ugh, a fine. Okay, how much is it? Oh, it's only 10K. He didn't say 10,000. He said 10K. Oh, here. And he flung 10,000 pounds into the communal pot in the center of the Monopoly board with a sort of swagger. Um, and my favorite slash the most alarming of all the comments was uh, when my daughter said this, yes, I've got the city and I've got Canary Wharf. That means if I build three apartments consulting the card and you land on me, mummy, you're going to have to pay me 11 million pounds. <laughs> she didn't do that, but it could have been followed by an evil laugh. Um, what was interesting slash alarming uh, was that my children didn't need anyone to teach them the fundamental rules of the game. They got it quickly. Oh, we need to get more. Okay, 
I want to hoard and get and grasp and own. They were there. And what was interesting was that no matter how much they had, it was never quite enough. 250,000, I want 500,000. Five million in your little bank account, I want 10. Four properties, two airports, and a get out of jail free card, not enough. I want more. Money, fake or real, has a kind of pull on us, doesn't it? And I think there are very few of us who can be entirely neutral around money. If you were out for a walk in the countryside and you saw lying in the mud a crumpled 50-pound note, I suspect that there are most of us, even the very richest of us, would feel a strange thrill of excitement as we reach down to pluck it from the mud. Why is this? Why is this? Well, I think there's a really big clue in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus calls money a rival God. He says this, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What Jesus is saying here is that money is more than just an object. It has a kind of power about it that seeks to dominate our lives if we, we, we let it. Jesus is saying, therefore, that we need to take money and our interaction with it incredibly seriously. There's only room for one God in our lives. And if we orientate our lives around money, if that becomes the thing that we're living for, that we allow to make all our decisions for us, if we let it hold our, all our top affections rather than God, things will happen that will stop us being fruitful as Christians. And from this passage, we can see three things that will happen. Here's the first thing. If money holds the top spot in our lives, if that's the thing that we orientate our lives around, we become blind to God. Take a look with me at chapter 12, verse 1. If you've still got your Bibles open, it's on page 1044. Verse 1, this is kind of the scene in which Jesus is teaching from our reading today, and this is what it is. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak. Imagine the scene, if you will, for a moment. Jesus, one of the greatest rabbis, one of the greatest teachers of all time, is teaching. He's the potential Messiah, and although many don't realize it, he is actually God incarnate, in the flesh, right there speaking to them. Thousands of people are desperate to hear what Jesus has to say. They will never again hear anyone as wise, interesting, or as engaging as Jesus. And he's teaching on some weighty stuff. If you were to read on in chapter 12, you discover that Jesus talks about judgments and angels and the Holy Spirit. This is big, weighty topics. And there's always the possibility, the frisson of excitement, that there might be a healing or a miracle or maybe that a free lunch would get served. No wonder the crowds were trampling on themselves, desperate to get close enough to hear Jesus speak. And one man manages it. We, we don't know it's a man from the passage, but I'm assuming in this context it, it probably was a man. One man gets close enough not only to hear Jesus, but actually to be able to speak to him. Question. If you had God standing in front of you, what would you want to ask him? You could ask him one question. What would it be? What's the purpose of my life? How am I meant to live? How did you create the world? What is gravity? Who knows? 
What did this man ask Jesus? Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. God incarnate, right in front of you. What are you talking about? Money. Now, was this a bad request? Nope, not really. Clearly, someone had died, and they'd left some inheritance, and this man had a brother, and he wanted his fair share. He wanted justice. Jesus is really pro-justice, okay? So this is a, it's not a bad request. And these kind of requests were not uncommon in the times. Rabbis were often called on to arbitrate in family disputes. So it's not an abnormal request either. It wasn't wrong. It wasn't abnormal. It was just embarrassingly inappropriate, embarrassingly inappropriate. This man was so focused on getting his money that he missed God standing right in front of him. And that is why in verse 15, Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. In other words, take this seriously. This is what can happen when we get things like this wrong, when we put things in the proper, in the, not in the right perspective. If money holds the top spot in our lives, if that's the thing that we're living for, we become blind to God and all that he is doing around us and within us. It's the first thing. Second thing is this. If money holds the top spot in our lives, if that's the thing that we focus on and orientate our lives around, we become blind to the truth about our situation. Take a look with me at verse 16. So in response to this man's request, Jesus says this. He told them a certain par- this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So there's a farmer, and he's just had a bumper crop. In fact, it's more than a bumper crop. It's an absolute windfall, a life-changing crop, a crop so large that he can afford now not to work for the rest of his life, to switch to kind of modern parlance. This man has won the lottery. What's the first thing he does? Throw a party? celebrate, praise the Lord for this unexpected blessing? No, the very first thing this man does is to complain. It's to complain. Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, please note, this man was not a subsistence farmer who had never had enough crops to store before and therefore faced a genuine problem. No, this was already a rich man, even before this bumper crop. He already had barns big enough to store a huge amount. That was the reality of his situation. He'd been doing it in the past. He was already rich. The only problem was he didn't have space to store the excess of the excess. The excess of the excess. This was a wealthy man, a wealthy man, but he does not see it. His money had blinded him to the truth. Instead of seeing this bumper crop as a blessing and one that could have been used to bless others, he just saw it as a problem. And having solved his problem, a way for him to live a life of ease. If money holds the top spot in our lives, if that's the thing we orientate our lives around, we will become blind to the truth about ourselves and our situation. Third thing. If money holds the top spot in our lives, we become blind 
to other people. Notice the language that this man uses in this parable. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. The only person this man talks about and to is himself. My crops, my barn, my life, my soul. Me, myself, and I. He doesn't acknowledge that God is the giver of all things. And he certainly doesn't acknowledge that his wealth could be used to bless other people. The family down the road being forced to sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debts. The widow who's desperate for some food. Even the farm laborers that he would have needed to help him bring in this crop. No acknowledgement of anyone else. It's all about him. This man's wealth had blinded him to other people. And if money holds the top spot in our lives, if that's what we are living for and focusing on and making all our decisions about, we will become blind to other people and their needs. And the culmination of putting money first in our life is God's damning verdict in verse 20. You fool. You fool. In the Bible, a fool is someone who says there is no God, who lives their lives as if there is no God. If money holds the top spot in our lives, the natural consequence of that is that our lives will be lived as if there is no God. It's all about me, myself, and I. It is impossible for God and money to be in charge of our lives. We have to make a decision. Who's calling the shots? Who's calling the shots? Who's in charge? Who are we living for? Is it money or is it God? Now, my hope is that for most of us here today, we do really want it to be God. That is our desire. But this is tough, isn't it? This is a tough area. We live in the real world. We have jobs. We have to deal with money. That's just how it is. How do we navigate our lives in such a way that money is put under the authority of God, that God gets the top spot and money is underneath him? The key thing I'd love us to take away is this. We need to learn how to use money but not serve money. We need to learn how to use money, but not serve money. There are loads of ways we can do this. As I was preparing for this sermon, I read one book, and this author suggested 11 ways. And I thought, I'm not quite sure we have time to cover 11 things. So I've settled on two. You're welcome. Uh, these two things, however, I think are a really great kind of springboard into this area of learning how to use money and not serve money. So here's the first one. We need to be honest about money. We need to be honest about money. I, uh, I am a pretty tidy person. Um, when people come into my house, this happens quite regularly, actually. She says somewhat smugly. People often remark on how clean and tidy it is. It doesn't matter that, you know, 10 minutes before I've been frantically cleaning beforehand. I go, oh, thank you very much. Um, I like things to be neat and tidy. I love watching the TV programs, uh, you know, where the camera crews go in and they find people whose houses are massively chaotic, sort your life out, I think, by, with Stacey Solomon, BBC iPlayer. Um, and they go in and then they sort of literally sort their lives out and they order it and it's all wonderful. A little part of me, slash very large part of me, um, judges those people. How can you let things get so bad? 
It's all right. Jesus is still working on me. Not a finished project. Um, but so I'm like a, a, a tidy person. I like things to be neat. Now, Recently, uh, we had our sort of kitchen and dining area uh, repainted. It hadn't been painted for years and years. And so we got a decorator in, because we're sensible. Um, and uh, in order to, for the decorator to be able to paint, we had to move the furniture away from the walls so he could, you know, access. Um, we did that before he came. And we have a very large sort of wooden bookcase that hadn't been touched for seven years. So my husband and I, pulled this uh, large bookcase away from the wall, and, and the scene behind the bookcase, um, well, it was interesting. I mean, it was disgusting, actually. Um, on the skirting board were seven years' worth of dust. Uh, if you've never seen seven years' worth of dust, let me tell you, it's just thick. It's thick. Um, and as we all know, dust is predominantly made up of dead skin cells. So essentially, there was seven years' worth of dead skin uh, just lying behind this bookcase. Um, it was also, as it turns out, the place that all the spiders in our house, possibly in the neighborhood sort of area as well, uh, went to die. Um, so on the back of the bookcase, it was sort of dripping in uh, spider's webs. And then on the floor, uh, amongst the dust, uh, were the scattered and shriveled bodies of many dead spiders. Um, in among, am I painting a good picture? You're getting, you're getting this. It's repulsive. <laughs> amongst the dead spiders um, were sort of toys, little bits of toys that, you know, had rolled under the bookcase. Uh, they, too, were coated in the dead skin cells. And then these sort of... A proverbial cherry on this pretty repulsive cake was that there were also bits of decomposing food um, that had also managed to find their way under the bookcase. It was, um, it was disgusting. Uh, whilst I had been really good at cleaning and sorting my house, um, there were areas that I had just avoided dealing with, mostly because it was just a bit too much hassle. It was far easier to ignore what was behind that bookcase than actually pull out the furniture and sort it out. Here's the link. Money, in the same way, can be a similarly scary topic for many of us, can't it, to think about. We don't want to think about it. As I was prepping for this sermon, I read that apparently in couples counselling, couples are far more comfortable talking about their sex lives than they are their finances. Isn't that extraordinary? They just don't want to talk about it. For many of us, this topic of money can bring feelings of shame and guilt and embarrassment, a sort of sense of panic. Oh, I hope no one ever finds out. It's the area we avoid talking about with other people and often the area we avoid talking about with God as well. We work on all other areas of our lives, but money? No, thank you. But if we want to live fruitful lives as Christians, we need to start by being honest about money, by bringing this whole area into the light of Jesus Christ. And to start this process, we need to be honest about the way we are with money and why this might be. So this is going to require a little bit of self-reflection for some of us. Um, to give you an example from my own life, uh, growing up, uh, we didn't have huge amounts of money. We had enough, but we didn't have sort of much money to spare. And this has impacted my relationship with money, both positively and negatively. Uh, so the positives are that I am brilliant at finding a bargain. 
I am amazing. It's rare that I'll pay full price for anything. Really good at that. I don't often overspend. If I don't have the money, I won't spend it. Uh, credit cards, not really part of my life. That's kind of the positive side. The negative side of that is that I am stingy. I, I can be stingy. I begrudge spending money on people or things. Giving is really hard work because I think if I give, what if there's not enough left for me? Maybe it's the opposite for you. Maybe you grew up with plenty or you had parents who just wanted to give you everything. And so maybe as a result, you've always bought things because you felt it was your right. It's my right to have these things. Even if perhaps your circumstances have changed and you can no longer financially afford them. Maybe you're one of the 63% of adults living in the UK at the moment who have serious personal debt. Maybe you have that sense of fear every time the credit card statement comes through and you just think, I can't think about it. You have that kind of sick feeling, I don't want to know. I don't want to think about it. I want to just avoid that area. As an aside, if that's you, I just want to say you are not alone, clearly. There are 63% of adults in the UK who are battling with this problem, and I'm sure the church isn't, isn't an exception to that. However, there is help available. As Christians, we're called to live free lives, aren't we? Um, there's one particularly good charity that I know about, Christians Against Poverty, CAP, C-A-P, and their website offers loads of help and support to get you out of this spiral of debt and all that comes with that. To return to my cleaning story, pulling away the furniture, as you've all heard, was disgusting and inconvenient and time-consuming. But you know what? Doing it enabled me to clean and sort that area and I'm no longer afraid of what's behind there now. I have freedom. It's the same with money. The first step to putting money under the control and authority of God and using it but not serving it is to be honest about it and our relationship with it so that we can deal with it. Jesus doesn't want us to live in fear of anything, and that includes this topic of money. So the way we start, first of all, is to be honest. Second thing that we can learn how to use money and not serve it is to practice giving. Practice giving. As we read our Bible, uh, it seems like one of the best things we can do with our money is to give it away. Why? Because giving money robs it of its power over us. It stops it from being a God in our lives. And this is an incredibly countercultural thing to do, isn't it? beginning of this year, several national newspapers ran a story about a couple who had won £500,000 on Anton Deck's new game show on ITV. Um, and the reason there was so much press interest in this couple wasn't because of the amount of money they won, vast though it was, although not if you're playing Monopoly with my children, but it was because of what they said in the interviews afterwards. So this couple were interviewed and they said this, We've always given away 10% of our salary to charity, so this isn't going to be any different. We'll give at least £50,000 to charities close to our hearts, like mental health and leukemia charities. The newspapers found this so newsworthy precisely because it was so countercultural. Society says, are you kidding me? You've just won this money fair and square. It's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. Why would you give it away? Spend it on yourselves. 
It's incredibly counter-cultural to give. Giving our money not only stops it from having a hold over us, but it does something else too. Take a look with me at verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. When we give, we become rich towards God. Now, let's be clear. We're not buying God's affection or kind of paying our way into heaven, but instead we're demonstrating and entrusting our treasure into God's hands. Later in chapter 12, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we give, we entrust our treasure and therefore our hearts into the care of God, the only place it will ever truly be safe. Giving reminds us that everything we have is a gift from God anyway, and it enables us to keep our wealth in its proper perspective, to be used but not to be served. Now, note, I deliberately said we need to practice giving. We need to practice. Like any skill, giving requires time and repetition. If you want to get better at giving, you've got to do it repeatedly. Sorry, that's just the way it is. So how do we do this? Well, if this is an entirely new concept to you, start by actually doing it and, and start small. So in the Old Testament laws, uh, they, people were told that they needed to give 10% of their wealth away. 10%. Start there. Work out what 10% of your salary is and give it away. Setting up a direct debit, make sure that you're committed to this. Once you've mastered 10% post-tax, maybe try 10% pre-tax. Little nervous shivers around the room. Or maybe if you feel really comfortable in this and like, yeah, got it down, okay, maybe give 10% to the church and maybe another 3% away to charity or another 5% away to charity. If you're a student, welcome, we love you. Um, maybe work out what one coffee every week costs you and then give that money away. And obviously, don't buy the coffee. It's got to be costly. Um, you know, can I just say as an aside, get this sorted now while you're students. Don't think, oh, well, when I'm earning money, then it'll be easier. Then I'm going to start giving. Mm -mm. Start now and keep on with that habit. If you want to strengthen your giving, if you want to get better at it, if you want to be filled with joy in the giving, because let's face it, it can be tough. It can be tough. Start learning about the impact of your giving. Why are we doing this? We're doing this because we want God's kingdom to come on earth. Bottom line. That's why we're doing this. We want God's kingdom to come on earth. Um, so when you give to HG, for example, a lot of that money goes to fund our large staff team. We don't have a large staff team just because we want a large staff team. We have a large staff team because we want to see God's kingdom come in Cambridge. And they enable us to do that. They equip that. They lead things that help that along. Find out what they do. Go and talk to them. It's a revolutionary concept, I know. Find Becca. She is our youth leader. She's our youth worker. Ask her what she's doing. They are equipping young people, teenagers, in Cambridge and Cambridgeshire to tell their friends about Jesus Christ. That's extraordinary. That's so exciting. Chat to Ollie and Lila about Alpha running on a Thursday night. Lives are being changed. When we give, we get to be part of God's kingdom coming. That is exciting. Or to give you another example, let me tell you about someone called Selena. 
Uh, Selena lives in Uganda. I read about her recently. Um, she's one of her husband's six wives. She has seven children of her own, and she doesn't receive much financial support for them, so she was really struggling. Last year, Selena joined a savings group in her village. This group was set up and supported by Five Talents, which is a Christian microfinance charity which works um, throughout the world. Uh, and the way it works is people join the group, they receive business advice uh, and education if their own education has been stopped early or interrupted, and then they are given small interest-free loans to either develop the businesses that they currently have or to start new ones. Selena joined the group, she got a loan, and with that loan, she was able to set up a small grocery store on the road into her village. It's only small, but with the money that that grocery store produced for her, she has been able to send all seven of her children to school. This is extraordinary. All seven children get to go to school. Not only that, with the education that she additionally received from the group, she said that before she'd have to ask someone who could read to read her children's health cards. She couldn't read them. She can now read them herself. Isn't that empowering? Isn't that exciting? Isn't that amazing? With the math skills that she learned from this group, she's able to track her profits and check that she's doing things well in her thing and then plow the profits back into the group so more people are blessed. Lives are being changed. When we give, we get to be a part of that. That is exciting. The grip of money is broken and lives are transformed. God's kingdom comes on earth, whether that's in Cambridge, whether that's in Uganda, whether that's around the world. And giving our money plays a part in that happening. There is much fruit produced. The more we practice giving, the more we realize the truth of what Jesus said. Give and it will be given to you. Give and it will be given to you. When we give, we get so much back. Money loses its grip on us. We no longer have to do what it says. That's exciting. We live for God. We do what he says. Our eyes are open to what God is doing. The truth about our own situations and to the needs of other people. So how do we learn to use money but not serve it? We start by being honest about money and our relationship to it. We bring it into the light of Jesus Christ. And then by practicing giving. When we do this, when we remove money from the top spot in our lives and put Jesus back on the throne, we let Jesus take charge. He's calling the shots now, not money. Jesus is. We say money has no power over us. We become rich towards God. He holds our treasure. And our lives start to become more and more fruitful. And God's kingdom comes on earth. Is that exciting? Amen. Oh, yes. Amen. Let's pray as we finish, shall we? Jesus Christ, we, we only give because you have first given everything for us. Thank you that you have just poured out your extravagant love and grace on us. Thank you that you were willing to die for us. That is how much you have given. Lord, we bring this whole area of our money to you. We say we want to use money but not serve it. We want to put it under your authority. Give us courage, wisdom, and creativity to use our money in bringing about your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.